Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. So we had discretion in deciding whether or not to bring the case. We have discretion in deciding how aggressively to pursue it in the grand jury hearing. And now maybe we'll talk about evidence since we, since we raised it. Prosecutors are required to provide certain evidence to defendants. What is it and what do they not have to provide? <laughs> well, as I said before, there's an obligation, both a constitutional obligation and an ethical obligation to turn over all evidence that tends to negate the guilt of the accused, or I guess the constitutional standard is all material evidence and the ethical standard is all evidence. So there's some, I suppose, question about what exactly that means, but that's the obligation. And then um, depending on what jurisdiction you are in, there are statutes that also require disclosure of things. So you'll have to give over the defendant statements and lab reports and other things. And in some jurisdictions, it's more, it's a witness list, it's right. statements of witnesses. And there's also timing, you know, the timing gets regulated on a, on a local level, so how quickly you have to turn things over. Yeah, let's talk about timing, because one thing, one thing that you mentioned is exculpatory evidence, but you didn't mention is damning evidence, your most powerful weapons against the defendants. And that's not something you have to disclose at the beginning. Or at the end. <laughs> um, it's actually pretty shocking if you compare disclosure in criminal cases where you think you'd have a heightened interest in getting it right to disclosure in civil cases. So in our civil litigation tradition, there's exchanges of evidence that's basically everything. Discovery. Discovery. You get, well, you get to depose witnesses. You file interrogatories asking questions and the other side answers them. You ask for documents and the other side produces all the evidence, the documentary evidence that they plan to use in the case, and then some. And in criminal cases, um, you know, it's evidence that's damning. And then as um, Professor Royfi says, it's material evidence that's damning. And prosecutors may look at a piece of evidence and say, it's not really material, it's not going to make a difference in the case, which gets back to the point about uh, you're sometimes so convinced in the rightness of your case and the guilt of the defendant that you don't perceive how this piece of evidence can be significant in the context of a defense. And so there, and, and you know, different jurisdictions have different policies. And so there are some that say that they have an open file policy. Um, so for example, um, and, and some by statute in North Carolina, for example, there's a requirement uh, on the state side of open file. And then defense lawyers will say, yes, but there's nothing in the file because, you know, what gets into the file depends on what the police give over to the prosecutors. And so, you know, here you have these criminal cases where you really don't want to make mistakes. We don't like to convict innocent people. And we rely on the effectiveness of the defense lawyer to protect against that. And the only way you could do an effective defense is if you, you know, have the evidence that is helpful to your cause to introduce. And if you have some idea of what the prosecutions can be doing so that you could defend against it. And yet, you get so little in comparison to what is disclosed in civil cases. It's very hard to justify. The justification, I think, is uh, we're worried that defendants and their friends will obstruct justice, will um, bump off witnesses, will you know, suborn perjury. Will, you know, the more they know the prosecution's story, the more they which can, can be real yeah, risks. You know, which are risks. And, and, but it, it cuts with a very broad cloth. And so you could, 
you know, some would say, well, look, we can understand in a gang case or an organized crime case being more circumspect about what you turn over. But how is it that in a securities fraud case, if it's done by the SEC, you're giving all this civil discovery. If the same case is brought by the federal prosecutors, you're giving over a minuscule amount. Do you really think that there's going to be threats to witnesses at the securities brokerage firm? Probably not. I think this is also something that really varies office to office and even prosecutor to prosecutor, but I, or unit to unit within the prosecutor's offices. There are just different attitudes toward what sort of evidence you should provide and what attitude you should have toward what you provide and what you don't provide. So, you know, I don't know. My, my bureau chief taught us if, if, if it's bad, if you feel like the defense would want it, give it over and give it over quickly because it's better for you. Very generous policy. Uh, yeah, I mean, in part because, I, in part, his view was that strategically, and this is, again, it's a white collar um, criminal unit, but he says that strategically, you want the judge to feel like you're being completely forthcoming and that you're helping this process because then the judge looks to you. So strategically, if you can, if you start to appear like you're playing games, then the judge is like, oh, I have two children in this class, in this courtroom. And instead of having the attitude of, oh, the prosecutor, oh, what is he, what is the prosecutor, what does she say is going on in this case? And so that dynamic is important to create strategically. So I think there are just many different attitudes toward it. And it is something that the culture of the office can create and perpetuate in a strong, in a, either a good way or a bad way. One of the, one of the problems is, um, you know, the, the origin of this is a Supreme Court case called Brady against Maryland. And there's all these cases that come afterwards in the Supreme Court. And the court has never said that you have to turn over Brady material, well, impeachment material which has to be turned over before trial, doesn't have to be turned over before a guilty plea. What do you mean by impeachment Okay, material? so under the constitutional decisions, there's two classes of material that prosecutors have to disclose. One is exculpatory evidence, meaning evidence that would tend to show that the defendant is innocent. And the other is impeachment material, which is um, evidence that would tend to impeach or you know, contradict or discredit uh, the prosecution witnesses. So there's a huge class of material involving um, the uh, prosecution's witnesses' prior statements, which might uh, be inconsistent with the testimony they're going to give, um, their prior bad acts, their convictions, other things. And you have that, to share that. That prosecutors have to give over. But prosecutors know that in the overwhelming majority of their cases, they're going to end up with a guilty plea. And so partly for administrative reasons and partly because the more you disclose it, you might be afraid um, the more likely the defendant's going to see the weaknesses in your case and go to trial. Uh, prosecutors often withhold that material until the bitter end. And so, you know, one of the problems with the timing is, although I, I think um, some prosecutors, as Professor Rolfe says, will say, we're going to give over everything we have to give at the earliest time in order to build credibility with the judge. Others will say, I have this ridiculous caseload, dollars to donuts, these cases are going to plead out. Uh, why should I do this task now? I have other things to do. So it's a bit of brink brinkmanship there. They're going to hold out some of the evidence that they're supposed to turn over in the hopes of settling it, getting it off their docket. Right. Or, I mean, there are other motivations too. I think prosecutors, 
what, what it's hard to realize, I didn't realize before I became a prosecutor, is it's really hard to meet the burden beyond a reasonable doubt. It is extremely hard because cases come to you and they don't come in a narrative that works. So you have to try to create that out of this mess of evidence that you're given. And to make that look beyond a reasonable doubt is really hard. And I mean, as it should be. But it's frustrating because you have a case where you really know somebody is guilty, but it's hard to, to explain that story. And half your witnesses are like the worst people in the world. So you're like, it's not that it didn't happen just because the person who was there was not a nun, right? The person who was there is probably in on it. And so it's very, very hard. And I think because prosecutors keep experiencing that, that's their mindset. And so they're, they want to win their case. And sometimes they should win their cases. But I think that mentality of, I don't want to give it over because they're going to use it to create reasonable doubt where it's not there. Now, of course, they should be able to use it to create reasonable doubt where it's not. That's the defense attorney's job. But I think that that's what happens is it becomes a sort of it becomes a kind of game that the prosecutor is playing inside the prosecutor's own head of what's going to play out at trial. And the idea that the defense attorney is going to make something look like it's confusion, like it's a hole in your case, even though that's not what you think it is. And so that, I think, leads a lot of prosecutors to hold the material back, too. You alluded to a game that some prosecutors might play with holding evidence. Another accusation against some prosecutors is overcharging. That's where prosecutors will bring such egregious charges in order to put immense pressure to plea. How does that work in your experience? Well, you know, overcharging, first of all, is in the eyes of the beholder. Um, in theory, if you're the prosecutor, you want the punishment to fit the crime. And so in the end, you think um, people should not have to do be imprisoned for longer than necessary to serve the ends of criminal You justice. say in the end, is this kind of like if I want to buy your car, I start with a really low bid knowing well, we'll end up somewhere in the so, middle? So, so you have to look at it in terms of the plea bargaining process. If I'm a prosecutor, I want justice to be done in terms of the outcome, and I want, don't want to have to try the case because that's a burden on the judge, the jurors, the office, and the more cases you try, the fewer you can investigate, etc. So there's a tendency to want to induce criminal defendants to plead guilty in part by making the implicit threat that if you go to trial and you get convicted, you will be punished much more harshly than if you plead guilty. And to make sure that that's true, you bring um, very serious charges. So for example, on the federal side in drug cases, uh, there are crimes where if you're convicted, you have a mandatory minimum sentence of 10 or 20 years. And you may be the prosecutor who thinks this person deserves only five years, uh, but they have no incentive to plead guilty if I charge them only with a crime that's punishable by five years. And so I will charge 20, 30, 50 years worth of counts or mandatory minimums in order to have the bargaining leverage, like you know, starting high in the sale of a car in order to bargain down to a guilty plea. That is a great theory, maybe, uh, except in the cases where defendants want to exercise their trial rights because they think that they're innocent or that they could establish a reasonable doubt. And then if you get convicted at the end, you will be punished much more harshly than even the prosecutor believes you ought to be punished. But doesn't stacking the risks that high encourage innocent people to also plead guilty? 
Well, that, that's something you should talk about on the state side because there's a lot of writing about people, even in the lowest level court and misdemeanor cases, who say, well, you know, I could come back here and defend myself. I can maybe sit in prison while I'm waiting to defend myself, or I could take a plea offer for something that will let me have time served or no jail time, um, even if I think back I'm to my innocent, right? I, I mean, the, yeah. the stakes are just too high. I think that's right. I mean, I, I think there. I mean, there there are different levels of abuse, I guess, or use of this of the of charging, and I, I I think it does happen sometimes that a prosecutor will threaten charges that they can't even bring because they want they want the plea, and that's obviously wrong and obviously bad, and I and I do think that happens. So um, police are allowed in the interrogation process to lie to you. Are prosecutors allowed? To they lie are to you? not. They are not. But, you know, if a prosecutor says, I'm going to supersede, let's say you're arrested on a sexual assault misdemeanor, and they say, you know, we'll let you out probation um, and some programs, your community service, and you have to go through these programs, um, or we're going to supersede with a rape charge, attempted rape. And attempted rape is 25, you know, years in prison versus, I mean, could anybody, I mean, even if you were innocent, in, in, under those circumstances, it's just the choice that you've left this person with no choice, and that is not right. I mean, if you have the evidence to support the attempted rape case, then it changes the calculation a little. But as Professor Green said, if you have the evidence to support it, but you don't really think that this person is a rapist, you don't think they would actually have gone through with it, or whatever mitigating factors, and you think the appropriate thing for them is maybe two years in prison, or maybe this other offer where they have no prison time, then bringing that charge, you know, maybe if you get to the right resolution in plea bargaining, it's okay, but what if the person is innocent, or what if, you know, that it does put people in a position where they have no choice. But is it unethical, or is it just not... Not good lawyering. So if you have probable cause to charge attempted rape in, in Professor Royfe's scenario, you meet the ethical standard, yeah. and that, that's the end. And the legislatures give prosecutors a ton of power and discretion. So probable cause doesn't mean that they have any chance of winning. Well, well they have some chance of winning, but yeah. Well, I, it doesn't guarantee that you're going to get a conviction. It just means you can... You can try. Ethically, get before a jury. But, um, you know, prosecutors, you know, even leaving aside the legal and um, professional ethics standard, it's very hard to know because the process is so opaque what's going on in the prosecutor's minds. And so I could see a prosecutor saying, well, I think this defendant attempted rape. And uh, if they're willing to accept their guilt and be contrite and plead guilty to a lesser offense. That makes them less dangerous because it shows they're more susceptible to rehabilitation. And um, they're sparing the state the, uh, the burden of having to try the case, so they're giving us an administrative break. It's also on and, their record if there was ever right. any right. type of... And, and so it's fair and proportional uh, to accept a guilty plea to the misdemeanor. But if they're not willing to plead guilty, then I see them as dangerous, they're denying their guilt, etc., and I'm going to bring the much more serious offense. I don't think, you know, if a, if a prosecutor thinks that way, genuinely, you can really make an argument that they're acting unethically in any sense. But you never know what they're thinking, or they could be thinking, 
I think this guy is a misdemeanant, but I have probable cause because, you know, the evidence is, you know, what, what it is. And I sure would like to get a guilty plea, and I know I can get it if I indict on a much more serious offense. And that's what I'm going to do strategically. That, to me, I think is unethical, not in the sense that you could punish a prosecutor. It's just a breach of your a misuse of your discretion. But I, I think you never know from the outside what the thought process is. See, I, I think the thing is our system gives so much discretion to prosecutors that it comes down to this, we have to trust these people. So we have to make it so, we have to work to try to make it so that they are trustworthy. It's There's no way to really take the discretion. I mean, you can try to do things to make their just kind of make their discretion less, but you can't take it away. So you have to try to, if there's a problem, the reform has to be in making these offices have a better focus or better culture because there's no way of taking it away. So that's why Professor Green's like, well, in this circumstance, in this it, it's it really has to do with the thought processes of the individual prosecutor or that prosecutor in consultation with their supervisor. So the discretion can make a good prosecutor great, but it could also make a bad prosecutor terrible. Terrible. And and if you try to take the discretion away, and this gets back to a place you began, it makes things worse. And so in the uh, the Justice Department, a number of administrations ago, said. Um, once you bring charges, you have to bring the most serious charge that um, the evidence will support. And so in cases where prosecutors might have thought, well, um, this person deserves to be prosecuted, but not to the max, the Justice Department policy in order to avoid uh, disparities within offices and from one office to another said you have to bring the most serious charges. That is part of what has filled our prisons, you know, or at least on the federal side, and resulted in sentences that are now universally, almost universally regarded as much too harsh. And now the Justice Department has a policy of trying to mitigate to some degree the harshness of those sentences. So in seeking right. fairness, they may have made a huge mistake. Well, the, right, there's contradictory impulses. So you want fairness, you want consistency, but you want proportionality. You want the punishment to fit the crime, not the punishment to be three times what is deserved. It's hard to balance all these things. Traditionally, uh, the answer was prosecutors who are wise and just and you know have good judgment, et cetera, but we're all people and it's not possible it's to do It's just really not susceptible to bureaucratic control or it's very, very hard to manage these kinds of decisions that are so dependent on the facts and the intricacies of an individual case at a bureaucratic level. So we push this down to these offices and to these individuals and to these units within these offices, and it's complicated and hard. What about discretion on the other end? There's often the perception, if, if it's not the reality, there's the perception that if a young affluent kid gets caught with drugs, he'll get a slap on the wrist. If a poor uh, person of minority gets caught with some drugs, they're more likely to see actual charges going forward. Well, I mean, that is, I think it's true and it's problematic. I, I don't, um, I'd be interested in knowing, I have to have more facts about how much of that happens at the charging level and how much of it happens at the arrest level. So I think we have multiple problems and there's certainly been a lot of high profile cases about law enforcement and law enforcement in New York 
um, and problems with racially motivated law, um, policies. So I don't know. I mean, I think if we fix that and we still have a problem, I'm mean, not that we shouldn't try to fix both of the problems at the same time, but I think a lot of the problem happens at that level too. So, so more arrests on one side rather than the other. Well, more also, I mean, there's more policing in areas where there are higher crimes. So that they, they're arresting more people in those areas where tend to be minor, largely minority neighborhoods. And then when they can't get the individuals on, you know, gun possession or um, on higher crime, they don't have the evidence for that, then they charge for smaller possession of drugs. And that's, you know, that's bad and problematic. But, you know, I also think that there are probably, you know, there are probably things that go on at the charging level at prosecutors' offices as well. It's just harder to get at. I find all these things so complicated. First of all, you don't really know what's going on um, in terms of uh, how the prosecutor's offices are dealing with these cases en masse. And what's Again, going because on. the process, right, the is, process is, is opaque. Right. And, and also, um, you can make arguments on lots of different sides of these things. So, so you could say, um, you know, anybody who saw The Wolf of Wall Street knows how much illegal drugs were being mm -hmm. used in... Uh, Wall Street, and how come all the cases are against low-income individuals and never against because Scorsese drugs? films are all <laughs> right? Well, even even if they're not, I think it was commonly understood at the time that there was a lot of you know white powder, um, you know, being sold and used among traders. But the cases tend to be against um, you know street-level sellers and not against people who were selling and, and using in, at the um, on Wall Street as opposed to you know other streets. But um, you know, you could say, well, those people are less of a social risk or whatever. I mean, there are rationales that you can employ. There's one case in my readings where a prosecutor in Pennsylvania said, uh, if you're arrested for a drug offense in the city, um, we're going to prosecute you because this is a city that's a high drug area and it's dangerous and we want to clean it up. But if it's on the, in the suburbs, then you're eligible for an adjournment of the, you know, the, the charges because this isn't a high drug area. Well, I assume in the city it's low-income urban people of color, and in the suburbs it was probably more likely to be white drug users, and so it looks like a real violation of principles of equal justice. And on the other hand, you had a prosecutor who said, I have a rationale, and the court said, well, it sounds like a rationale that's good enough for us. I mean, the problem that prosecutors' offices face are grafted on larger social problems that we all face. So issues of inequality and wealth, race, poverty, uh, de facto sort of the reality of segregated cities in a segregated country are much bigger problems that affect prosecutors and affect us all. But in some ways, the solutions we can work on prosecutors' offices, but it'll be hard to really solve these problems until we address the broader social questions. One thing we talked about earlier was the discretion between how high profile a case is and the decision whether or not to bring that case. What we didn't touch on is what are the responsibilities and obligations when it comes to speaking directly to the press? Well, here's an area that actually is regulated by an ethics rule for, that applies to all lawyers, including prosecutors, um, although there's actually an extra rule for prosecutors. So the general rule for all lawyers is 
that you can't uh, make comments to the press, extrajudicial statements um, that are likely to um, adversely impact on the proceedings. So you, you're not supposed to say things publicly that uh, prospective jurors might hear and that will influence them unfairly because it involves facts that aren't going to be introduced at trial or uh, opinion uh, or other things that uh, isn't properly going to be before the jury. So, um, and in prosecutors' cases in particular, there's also a rule that says you can't say things essentially gratuitously that will heighten the condemnation of the accused. But there are very few cases, I think, from the uh, time these rules were adopted until today where prosecutors have actually been sanctioned for violating these rules. There's probably a handful. There are more cases where courts have uh, admonished prosecutors in court and said, don't talk anymore uh, to the press or, you know, I'm going to keep an eye on you. So they're not losing their license or being They're not losing their license and they're certainly not, you know, losing their cases. There's no case that I know of where a court has ever uh, dismissed a prosecution. Um, there's an old case that went to the Supreme Court where uh, the prosecutor was doing extrajudicial things, but it was in a context where there was so much else going on that made it a media circus that it was, you know, just one factor. But standing alone, um, I don't know of any case where prosecutors have been hurt in the prosecution because of their statements. In the, uh, in the Trayvon Martin case a few years ago, the prosecutor gave a press conference and she said in that press conference a number of things, but she emphasized her connection with the victims and said, I, I pray with Trayvon Martin's family. And in the press conference really suggested, if not saying outright, that she knew that the defendant was guilty or she herself believed that the defendant was guilty. And the, the nothing. I mean, there was there was nothing in the press. Though a lot of ethics experts noticed this and commented about it. But you know, I think that that it's more a sense among the community that something is wrong rather than a consequence that a prosecutor would face. So she kind of stepped over the boundaries. Not the actual ethics committee of Florida no. bringing her up. No. I, I think I think in um, one of the terrorist cases after. Um, September 11th, uh, the Attorney General Ashcroft made statements to the press uh, in a case and w was admonished for it, but it wasn't, you know, formally punished. He wasn't disbarred or anything. And and in the Rod Bogoyevich case, um, that's right. The prosecutor made statements like Lincoln would roll over in his grave that he later said he regretted when when he left. For those who are listening for MC Lee credit, the code for this part of the interview is 59999. That's 59999. And now back to the interview. You mentioned that some prosecutors can find themselves in a very high-profile situation. That's, to, that's aside from the fact that some prosecutors, at least in some states, are elected. How does that play into the ethical issues? Well, I, I think there's no special dispensation for elected prosecutors to make comments about pending cases that might prejudice a jury. Uh, but they may have incentives to do it that the line prosecutor doesn't have. But, but you know, it's all uh, relative. I mean, we, we've been talking about, you know, uh, pretty high-profile cases nationally. But if you're a local prosecutor, it doesn't have to be a terrorist case or the case against the governor of your state. 
you know, anything in your district that people are aware of is going to be of interest. And I think one of the things that's interesting now also is that with social media, uh, it doesn't even have to be a case that the press is really engaged in or following. It doesn't have to be a news story because prosecutors can put things out on Twitter if they use Twitter or, um, you know, on blogs that are about cases that aren't of, you know, national state or even that much local interest. And there have been some recent cases where prosecutors have blogged about pending cases, and that's been um, potentially problematic. There's no prohibition on, on Facebooking if you're a prosecutor? Well, you know, you're, you're caught between two different concepts. So on the one hand, you're elected and you're accountable to the public. And as opaque as um, decisions about prosecutorial discretion might be, in theory, the public ought to know and is entitled to know what you're doing. And so when you give a press conference or blog or otherwise communicate it with the public, it furthers your uh, obligation to be accountable. And then on the other hand, there's the fair trial rights of the defendant and the desire that cases be decided based on the evidence at trial and not on what people are saying in the press. And so you really have, um, as often uh, in the cases we've been talking about, contradictory impulses. Right. And, there, and in the rule, there is also part of the rule that says you're allowed to make comments to the extent necessary to counter prejudicial media that's already out there. So it's hard to say what the line is. I think that in these high-profile cases, there's a lot of incentive, again, as long as the prosecutor isn't Professor Green, to step over that line because it's this moment that you have in the limelight to be seen and to make an, your opinion known. And I don't know whether they're even thinking about prejudicing anybody's rights or thinking about what the jury might think as much as they are, here I have this high profile case and I get to speak for about it for a while. So, you know. And, and, and also, um, you know, part of the reason for bringing prosecutions is to deter other people from committing crimes. And if you do it in a bubble, and nobody knows about it, you're not getting any deterrent value about it. And you might say, well, why don't you wait until you, after you get a conviction? But you know how the news works. By, the, <laughs> by then, it's an old story. Right. It's really a story b before it happens rather than after it happens. And one of the, you know, talking about the rule, one of the exceptions is prosecutors can discuss things that are in the public record. So if it happens in court or it happens in court papers, well, prosecutors have a lot of power to make the public record. If you're the defense attorney, generally, you don't want to be too forthcoming because you don't want to give away your case to the prosecution. If you're the prosecutor, just drafting the indictment is often an act that you're doing with the um, media in mind. And while you could draft, so you could a draft short the one, indictment right? with an eye to your press conference, definitely. So, yes, and so um, you know you could draft an indictment in a case involving organized crime that gives a hundred-page history of organized crime, which will then give you a lot to say on the evening news. <laughs> Another concern may be when prosecutors are being elected, how are they behaving just before the election? Right, I think there's always a concern that a prosecutor has part of an eye toward this election and popularity and their constituency is in some ways their client, but in other ways not, right? So that the electorate is their client and they should be doing what their client wants them to do, but they're also supposed to be doing justice in a broader sense, which isn't really polling what this particular electorate wants you to do. So it can be problematic. Perhaps you could give an example or two where prosecutors have used their discretion either for good or 
with consequences that were uh, a bit more notorious. Well, the story that pops, it's hard for me not to talk about Daniel Bibb, who was uh, in cold cases in the Manhattan DA's office, which is the unit that deals with cases which haven't been solved for quite some time. And he was assigned the Palladium murder case, which was a big murder case. And he started to reinvestigate it because there was some evidence that came forward that the murder was actually committed by someone other than the two people who had been convicted of the crime. And he decided that when it came time, he had gone through the evidence, he was absolutely sure that the people in jail had not committed the crime. And so what he did was he could have not just stepped down and said, I refuse to take this case because I don't think that the people we've convicted did it. But his supervisors wanted him to continue and wanted him to go into a hearing called a 440 hearing. And in the 440 hearing, you present evidence before the judge. And the judge decides whether there's not enough evidence um, that the, of innocence to have a new trial and, or, or to dismiss the, the, um, the cases entirely. And he went into that proceeding. And what he says is that he threw the case. He was so sure that these two men were innocent and that somebody else had committed this murder after his, I think it was six year investigation into it, that he presented the evidence in such a way as to make sure that the judge would view it the way he viewed it. So I think that's kind of heroic and and amazing. I love that story in part because there are two uh, senior and very well-regarded legal ethics professors, neither of which are us, <laughs> who've written articles about that case from opposite perspectives. One said it was unethical for Bibb to throw the case, and the other said, you know, it as, was heroic, as, right? as, as Professor Royfi says, it was heroic. The, and the other piece of the story that I find interesting, there's probably a lot of pieces, involves a federal prosecutor named Steve Cohen, who later became a high-ranking... No relation. Per, no relation to you, <laughs> who became high-ranking in um, uh, the Cuomo administration, who had been at the t time, after the conviction in the Palladium case, which was involved um, two people were con convicted for killing a... Um, bouncer. A bouncer at, outside the Palladium nightclub. Um, Steve Cohen was a prosecutor in the federal U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan, and he was debriefing a cooperating witness who was a member of a gang up in the Bronx, who um, toward the end of the debriefing session, which I'm sure went on for days, said uh, um, when he was really pressed for every last useful piece of information he had, said, you know, that killing that these two guys were convicted of for the Palladium murder, um, it was actually a gang killing. Neither of them had anything to do with the gang. And, um, you know, they're innocent at somebody else. And, um, you know, the question was, what do you do with that information? Because after all, it was a conviction that was out of a different office. The case was already over. Um, and he brought that information to the DA's office, uh, believing that it was important that they have that information and investigate it, uh, which raises another disclosure issue. Um, so after that, um, the ABA adopted a new ethics rule that was added on to the prosecutor's ethics rule that talked about prosecutors' post-conviction obligations. And it says, basically, if after a conviction you learn new evidence of innocence that's material, uh, you have to disclose it to the defense and investigate it. And if you can become convinced uh, by clear and convincing evidence that the person you convicted is innocent, you have to take measures to try to get that person released. 
Um, Cohen did that actually before the rule told him he had to do that. But I think it's another example of you know prosecutor exercising discretion in a very positive way. Yeah, well, Cohen was in a different office. He could easily have said, it's none of my business. I have no obligations to do anything with this information. Right. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.